Hey podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Well, 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 back in the same room. Interesting. Interesting. You got some news to announce. Why don't you just get it out of the way? I'm pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) We sold our business. Yes. Yeah. Almost as exciting, maybe even more, depending on who you are. Yeah. I mean, it was our baby. That's true. We sold our baby. We did. And here we are. Full-time internet marketers now. Yep. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's asking us that's heard the news so far. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Brap. Nothing. No, no, no. That's not true. But we're not going to talk about that today. We'll get to that when we figure that out. That's (laughs) (laughs) First things first, we want to talk about some of the experiences we had while selling the business. This is going to be sort of the fundamentals of a big presentation you're going to be giving at DCBKK this year about sort of packaging and sort of having a life-changing exit and everything. But we just want to share a few anecdotes in this episode. Yeah, very broad strokes. This process was over a year and a half long. There's a lot to talk about. But today, let's just talk about kind of the broad strokes of what happened. Cool. Speaking of DCBKK, I'm going to do a little bit of marketing out of the way. We do have some public tickets available. You must qualify as a DC member. That means you must be a location independent entrepreneur if you want to come in. If you have any questions about that, I produced a podcast with our community manager yesterday, and we're going to be sending it out to the TMBA email list. So you can either jump on that email list at our domain, tropicalmba.com, or you can email us or tweet us or something, and we'll send you that podcast. It's going to be an awesome time. And you know, one of the things that I'm most excited about for that event is all the people that are organizing events leading up to the event. So it's going to be like a week-long thing. So far, we have 15 events, everything from Bitcoin enthusiasts, PPC power launch, seven-figure e-commerce entrepreneurs. Like One of the members wrote, how's your content going to stack up to all these great meetups you're having all week long? And it's a great question. I mean, it's going to be a fun week. By the way, we're going to let everybody know who some of the speakers are coming up here soon, right? Yes. Yeah, they're coming down the pike. Awesome. Working on it. Why don't we just do the base walk and talk about seven things you should consider when selling your business? First off, let me ask you, how do you feel? Because we've been running the business since late 2007. We bought the domain. And for those of you that are curious, we'll link to the episodes where we describe the business. But this is a product business that had e-commerce outlets and we sold industrial furniture for hotels and restaurants, notably portable bars. We sold valet parking equipment and we sold the occasional piece of pet furniture. Yeah. And we sold it all as a package to absolutely wonderful buyer. Maybe down the road, we'll talk more details on that end. But first off, tell me a little bit about how you feel because entrepreneurs, they work their whole lives to kind of have this moment. So Yeah, it's interesting. I think I'm less relieved than I thought I would be. Really? Yeah, I think so. For me, when we started this business, we didn't have any exit in mind. We didn't know what an exit was or we barely knew what we were doing at the time. In 2007, we started this thing. All of a sudden, it grows. We got a bunch of employees. We're making a decent amount of money. And then I'd say maybe two or three years ago, you and I started to have serious conversations about kind of what is the next step? You know, is it bring this thing to 10 million? Is it sell it? We've got this other business going. 
you know, the DC and you and I have some other things going together. And, and so it started to become an issue of focus. And I think although I got it down to the point where I was working only five to six hours a week, it's still mentally draining to own this business and basically be responsible for all these potential liabilities. And so we just came to the conclusion that, hey, I think it makes sense to get out while you can. And for me, once I started to realize that an exit was possible, and we can talk about all the different ways how to make it possible in this episode, but once we started to talk about how it's possible, I really saw that as a success point in my life, I guess. And so it was something that I wanted to achieve more once I saw the possibility. So it's like starting a business and then exiting from a business. Because as you know, Dan, most small businesses you never exit from. You either wind down or they go out of business or it's just not a real possibility. So it was, in a lot of ways, it was kind of a challenge to see if we could sell it. Yeah. That's a long answer, but I feel relieved, but not as relieved as I thought I would. So one of the things we talked about in our Q&A episode was the difference between having a lump of cash and a cash flow. And they're sort of different emotions because I've met a lot of people who have saved their whole lives and they have that retirement money and they kind of have this anxiety about what to do with it and what's going to happen to it. Whereas cash flows are, you have a little bit more confidence in them. It's the cash flow issue. And then it's also, you have this team and you have these capabilities. You know, when we owned the business, it was like, well, I got an idea. I'm going to throw it at that machine and see if it can pump out even more cash. And now that that's gone, some of those opportunities don't exist anymore. Right. You're just kind of left with this lump of cash that you have to go make work for you in other ways. So, and it's very different. And I'd love to talk more about that too, which is, you know, the idea of investing in your business and having that produce results versus investing with your cash is two very different things. All right. So we talked about how you feel, what motivated it. It's a mental ram thing. You want to move on. We want to do new stuff. We kind of asked ourselves, do we want to be the guys who run up this product business for the next 10 years or whatever? I don't think we wanted to be those guys. Didn't want to be those guys necessarily. And also I got to the point where I felt like I had learned everything that there was to learn about that business. Let me argue with you. There's one thing that we didn't do, and there was a fork in the road. I remember we talked about it a few times. We could have hired a, quote, CEO. Yeah. I remember when we were on the end of this deal, and we were both sweating our faces off about whether it would go through or not. We both said, there's no way, if this falls through, we're not going to go through this process again. We're going to hire a CEO. The process of selling, right? If it didn't go through with the last potential buyer, then we were going to hire a CEO. And how do you see that option now? I mean, I still see it as a good option. You know, I think the question in my mind still lays with the liabilities. So, right, because the CEO isn't going to participate in the downside. They're going to take their salary and go to the next job. Right. Whereas you're going to be sitting there with if the economy crashes right. or if you're doing another business and it goes off the rails for whatever reason, you're the guy whose neck is on the line. Yeah, as an owner, you're the one that's responsible for the liabilities. And so that doesn't get fixed, like you said, with the CEO. What does get fixed is that you go from spending six hours a week to zero and just having quarterly meetings. I mean, that was kind of our vision. I think it could have worked, but I still think that we made the right decision. I think part of our motivation to do this was risk aversion. Like, yes, we probably could have made more money if we would have hung on to it for another five or 10 years. Certainly. But it's like, we did a really good thing. Let's get our value out of it. Let's get our value out of the inventory, out of all those risk profiles and say, we're still young. We still want to work. Let's do it on something that's we're more passionate about or whatever. Yeah, totally. Like I said, I mean, I felt like I'd learned everything that I had to learn in that business and it was just time to move on. <laughs> I finally started like nervously looking at the headlines, you know, when we were sort of close to a deal. I was like, I got worried about things like the economy, like the big 
giant economy. I just because you know, like when you start to think of how much these things are really worth, you start to wonder about things like that. Like, well, what happens if the economy crashes? That might mean we have to hold on to this asset for another three or four years. And I was so sort of emotionally committed to moving on that I was scared about stuff like that. Yeah. Let's then talk about seven things that we wish we would have known. We hope other people would consider as they're building their businesses and they're thinking about a potential future exit. Yeah. And, and trust me, we read every article there was to read on the internet about selling your business. So let's talk more than anecdotally about things that we actually experienced rather than like the make sure you have process in place. So yeah, Okay. We'll, we'll get to that stuff maybe later in the future. But Ian and I were joking. We could probably talk about this for 10 episodes. Yeah. Easy. Let's just talk about some broad strokes. So the first one is you should know who you're going to meet during this process. And we'll talk about three different people. First thing is, how do we get our deal flow from this? I think this is probably a whole other episode. You and I, we've got this great list over at the Tropical MBA at this podcast of listeners, people that sign up. We chose not to go to that list to sell this business. I think it's worth mentioning that because a lot of people don't have that option. They have the option which we took, which was going to a business broker. Yeah, I don't doubt that decision because we had a great experience with our broker. But I do think that if you have a list like we do at the Tropical MBA and it's a place where you're actively talking about the business that you grew, you have a huge potential advantage over going with a business broker. We didn't do it for a couple of reasons. The main reason is because we didn't want to tip our staff off to the sale. Basically, we knew that it was probably going to take a year to sell the business. Yeah. And we also knew that there was a good chance that we wouldn't sell the business. Right. And so if all of a sudden you're doing this big public thing, you're committed to selling the business in relatively short order because otherwise you have a bunch of staff who think that you're on the way out. Right. Unless you're the kind of business that's been talking with your staff for the last five years about the potential of an exit. Yeah. I think that, that probably happens a lot of times with startups and some of these higher growth companies. You know, It's like, of course we're going to get acquired. This is a small business. Well, so how did the staff feel when you finally sat them down and came to them and said, hey guys, I'm leaving? Oh man, that was probably one of the most stressful days my life, you know, flew to San Diego and let everybody know. And I had a lot of unfounded fears about that conversation. And I think people could probably sense that, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that's generally nervous or, or physically looking stressed out. And that day I was, I think everybody took it much better than I did. I mean, everybody was, I think on some level prepared, but it went great. And we could talk a lot about that process and what I did to prepare. But I, I think the important thing is to be hundred percent honest and transparent with your staff. And we had been up to this point and, but you didn't tell them that you had the business on the marketplace. Correct. So I was going to say up until this point with everything except for that. It's very difficult to try and sell a business without letting your staff know what's going on, especially if you don't have access to everything. So you really have to think about strategically, you have to think about how that's going to play out and the people that you're going to have to get involved because you probably are. If you're involved like I was at five to six hours a week with this business, you know, you don't have a lot of your fingers in the right places to get the information that the buyer's going to want. So probably going to have to let somebody know. Well, one of the things that surprised us is that it's obvious that there's a lot of opportunities with our product business. That's not our product business anymore. The staff recognized that, but when you're only showing up one day a week or hanging out on the phone a couple hours, they might think that they're the ones driving that opportunity and not you. So... Tell us about that experience. And I think you're right on some levels. I mean, I did play the role of CEO in the company, although it was only for a couple hours a week. 
but I did play that role. So I think in terms of who was driving it forward, yeah, it was definitely the staff. But uh, I kind of had the overall vision for the direction that we were going to go. Well, I wanted to mention that I think that that affected their emotions when you announced to them. You were really worried about like they were going to think that you were abandoning them or betraying them and all this kind of stuff. And they were like, oh, cool. Like, you mean someone that's like super passionate about this is going to come on board and all that? Right. And that's why. So we went through a lot of suitors and we went through a couple of suitors that we didn't want to sell to. And so when we finally came across somebody that we felt like would be a good fit for this company and for the team moving forward, you know, that was really important to me, especially because, you know, this was our baby since 2008. You didn't want to just drop it on its head and hope that it was going to survive. Yeah. You know, I felt like I had to leave it in the hands of somebody that was capable and also somebody that the staff would relate to. And that's ultimately, I think, we're in a pretty fortunate position that we could be able to kind of choose someone versus being forced. Let's do that then. Let's play the business selling dating game. Yeah. And I want to talk about some of the suitors that we came across and how that experience went. And I think you'll encounter some people like this. So the first person that we met, we'll call Deals Dimitri. This guy's my favorite. <laughs> Deals Dimitri, and these are real people. The names have been changed to protect our identity, but <laughs> their traits are real. Deals Dimitri is a real person and he approached us to buy our business and he had told me this came out not on our first date but he had bought like 26 businesses before so and here's me you know we had sold like two other sites you know for like nothing compared to what we sold this business for so let's talk about our track record really quickly way back in the day in 2010 i believe we sold outsourced to the philippines to chris ducker for an undisclosed fee not that much. I mean, it was, it was, I think it was a fair price for both of us. And then a few years later, we sold an industrial furniture niche site, which is, was almost 100% drop ship. And we sold that through the Empire Flippers. And they did a great job with that. And I think, can we say what our closing sale was? I mean, it was mid five figures. Yeah. Like a BMW. Yeah. So it was nothing compared to what we accomplished here. After taxes and you split it up was a couple dirt bikes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So deals Dimitri, he had bought and sold something like 25 businesses. This guy was a real shark and I told him as much on one of our dates and he don't like that too much. But what came out with deals Dimitri is a bunch of things. So deals Dimitri has a lot of cash. So that provides him with some leverage in this situation. Deals Dimitri has a lot of experience. Experience. So if you look at our track record, it's nothing compared to his. So he knows exactly how this process goes and what to expect. And he was in some ways leading me through the process. And I felt very uncomfortable with that being the alpha dog that I am. It's important to know <laughs> that we didn't realize this the whole way through. Right. So there's this process called uh, letter of intent and due diligence. And I don't, it might not work differently for different brokers or different sales processes, but basically it works like this. Deals Dimitri decides that he thinks you got a great business. So he gives you a letter of intent, which says, I intend to give you this much money for your business, assuming I get through the due diligence process. Right. The due diligence process means Deals Dimitri, takes you out to dinner, introduces you to his family, takes a look at your books, and it gives him 30 days to essentially evaluate the numbers that you've given to the broker and to the marketplace. Right. Well, the first thing that we realized, and this is obvious in retrospect, but when you're in the middle of it, it wasn't so obvious because there is this like quote structure and rules to all this stuff. But until you have money in your bank account, there's no deal. Like all of it's just paper that lawyers are signing and that 
brokers are sending around and shaking hands. I remember us getting in a lot of heated, furious debates about how we felt jerked around by this process. Because essentially what deals Dimitri did to us was he bullshitted us completely. And at the very last minute, like he made us believe that he wanted to buy his business. And then he lowballed us using his like certified accountant, like professional guy with an office and everything, sent us an official letter basically telling us our numbers were BS. And it was complete BS. Like the reasoning didn't even hold up. And we wrote back a detailed email saying why yep. the reasoning didn't hold up. And basically Double D and his accountant were like, hey, take it or leave it. We felt like the biggest noobs. That was a tough set of emotions to go through because we weren't pursuing other suitors at this point. Well, that's the problem with the process. So let's back up here a little bit. What happens when you get a letter of intent is basically I'm Deals Dimitri and I promise if I don't find anything wrong with your numbers that I'm willing to pay you X amount of dollars. And so we think, okay, you have to sign this piece of paper. What that does is it locks Deals Dimitri into a two-month exclusive time where he can kind of pick through your business. Wasn't it 30 days? It was 30 or 60 days. So you can basically pick through your business and basically monopolize your time. So you can't sell this business or market this business to anybody else except for deals to meet you. So you're locked in. So you really got to make sure that whoever you're dealing with and whoever you sign a letter of intent with actually has a the means and the funds to follow through and be the motivation to follow through. So we'll talk about the next person who is tire kicker, Tanya. (laughs) If you look at deals, he's got the money and he's got a track record of buying businesses. So why does it make him a bad buyer profile? for our business. Well, it just turned out that he was a shark. So basically, Deals Dimitri had no intent of paying the number that was on the letter of intent. And he fabricated all kinds of different reasons why he wasn't going to pay that number. The same way you do when you buy a used car, by the way. I don't think that that's true because you don't show up. If somebody asks you on the phone, you know, don't come out to my house if you're not willing to pay 16 grand, I won't come out to their house. You know, I'll say, look, I'm only willing to spend 13 or whatever. He signed a letter saying that that's the price that he agreed to. And I think a lot of people probably do this in the process, but we just weren't used to it. So in the end, here's what happened when deals Dimitri. I got an email and I still remember it. I was obsessively checking my email, you know, to see how this deal is going emails back and forth with accountants and, and this guy. And the whole time he was orchestrating, I, I roll over in the morning, it was like 7.30. I look at my phone, there's an email that says, Ian, we have to talk. The numbers aren't lining up. <laughs> and at this point, I'm like, okay, what do you mean? 11th hour. I mean, like literally four or five days left in the time period that he had. So the solution that he came up with, with his accountant was, look, we can't trust your numbers because they're not certified and this and that. What we're willing to do here is pay a multiple on the number that you put on your tax return because we can trust (laughs) what you told the IRS. Obviously, that wasn't going to work out. Why is there a difference between your tax return and what the business is worth? The tax return represents your income, basically, and that can be very different than the income that the business is producing. That's just your stated income for your tax return. It can be different. And it doesn't mean that you're doing funny things with the IRS or anything like that. It's just that's not the traditional way of valuing a business. And so we said, no way. But then he offered us a cash price. And ultimately, we agreed to a cash price to him, but it was higher than what he was willing to offer with the stipulation that we walk away from the business tomorrow, basically. So what I said to him was this. I mean, this was at the 11th hour. I was emotionally drained. And by the way, this was, I think, only the second person. And we had like four or five people that seriously evaluated this business. So if I would have known that it was going to take that many people, I might have approached this a little different. But these emotions, it's like getting married or buying a business or selling a business. We don't practice these things very often. And that's part of the reason we're recording this kind of long, in-depth episode is I hope that for people who are thinking about going into this process, 
you can get as much experience from your peers as you can because we felt pretty alone in this process, even though we live in a community of entrepreneurs. You know, there's just not that many people in this situation in their lives. And honestly, that one emotion could have cost us a million dollars. Yeah, we'll get to that in the third point here, how it almost screwed us with Deals Dimitri. There's one thing about Deals Dimitri that you didn't mention, which is that he shares something in common with all buyers is that they all want to feel like they're getting a great deal. The problem with the deals guy, the shark person, is that what a good deal means to them is something very different than what a good deal means to some of these other buyer profiles. Yeah. And we can talk about the growth trajectory of this business. He wants to put you over a lot. Right, right. That's what that guy wants. But there's another buyer profile called Tire Kicker Tanya. Tire Kicker Tanya. She was probably the least interesting of the buyers. What she wanted to do was just kind of do what a tire kicker does, which is monopolize your time, kind of step into the business, see if it's something that she's interested in. She doesn't even know. She just figures, here's the problem. I don't think we've talked about this yet. The process. I don't know if this happens with all brokers. It definitely happened with ours. They give the broker a $5,000 refundable deposit, which offers them access to your business in the due diligence for 30 days. Now, during that time, you can't sell to anybody. So you can see how easily these buyers can monopolize your time right. and not allow you to actually pursue serious buyers. So it's very important that in your process, you're actually vetting these buyers too. And there's a couple different ways you can do that. One of the ways that I think is the most effective is to get a personal financial statement from these people and to make sure that they actually have the money. I, I think Tire Kicker Tanya probably had the money, but here's the guy that didn't have the money. This was P.E. Paul. <laughs> P.E. Paul came in under the guise of a private equity firm. By the way, all you need to have a private equity firm is a decent suit and a couple golf buddies. Yeah, and, and a website with some stock photography. P.E. Paul comes in. Come to find out P.E. Paul is dry as the Travis River out here in Texas. So Travis Lake. There's always a person who thinks that they can pull together a deal. If they can identify that opportunity, they can turn to their friends and pull together the investment fund, essentially. Yeah. So they come in and they evaluate the business and then they go and scramble to pull the money together. And that's exactly what P.E. Paul did. Unfortunately, P.E. Paul came up a little bit short. So he wasn't able to convince everybody around him that it was such a good deal. Another buyer profile that we saw a little bit of and that we were sort of hopeful for is CEO Sally. CEO Sally is somebody who they're not evaluating your business like Dimitri was. Like basically, I want to get an asset at half of its value and then capitalize on that difference. You know, CEO Sally is really looking for a retirement play, like a long-term wealth play. Like essentially, they want to buy themselves a really great job, one that has long-term asset value. There's a couple of great things about CEO Sally. They often have the right experience to run a business. So they've been either at executive level or in other small businesses and stuff like that. They've got the money because they've been saving their whole life. And often they use loan structures in order to get into the business, which means it's a little bit of a leverage deal, which means that they're not price sensitive. So if Dimitri's coming in, literally writing a check directly from his you know, Bank of America or whatever, he's going to think much differently about the deal than the person coming into it, thinking about it as a long-term cash flow thing. Like, I'm going to leverage 75% of this deal. I'm going to come in and I'm going to pay it off over the course of 15 years. I think you're right, Dan. And I think also throughout this process, one of the other things that I learned is that you have to be ready to finance part of this deal. 
as a seller because that's a reality that comes up, especially when you're selling a business at our level. And it's also a level of comfort that people want. They want to know that you're not going to just walk away after 30 days of training. They're going to say, hey, I want you to stay invested in this business for a little bit of time. And I think during the negotiation process, that came up a lot and that wasn't something that we were necessarily expecting. One other guy that I want to interject into this conversation, you can see how many people we had to go through to find the right person is Synergistic Sal. (laughs) Synergistic Sal, and this was my wrongdoing. I approached a couple competitors when we started to sell this business. I knew in the back of my head that this was a bad idea. But I approached Synergistic Sal and I said, hey, you know, you've got these capabilities. I think that you might be interested in this business. And of course, Synergistic Sal wants to hear all about it. So I did everything short because I started to get a little premonition of what was going on. I did everything short of sending him our actual financials. And lo and behold, Synergistic Sal, you know, I think tried to rip us off at one point. I saw that he had made an order. I put a stop to that and I called him up and whatnot. So how did that phone call go when you called him up? It was very uncomfortable, but it was fun for me. It was uncomfortable for him. So what did you say? Like I saw that somebody from your company ordered a bunch of our products. Yeah, I said, you're under NDA. You know, I hope that you didn't order this product with the intent of ripping it off because that's certainly what it looks like to me. At first he denied it and then he didn't deny it. And he said, you know, I don't think that that NDA is official or whatnot. And I said, well, I'd be happy to have my lawyer call you and explain how it is if if you're interested in that. And that's basically how it ended. So with me threatening him. (laughs) Yeah. And we didn't end up sending the product out. So I think that it died right there. What's important here is I, I approached Synergistic Sal at the wrong time. If you're planning on selling your business to your competitor, I think it's most of the time from the stories that I hear, it's you have an ongoing conversation with them as you are both operating these businesses. You don't approach them during your sales period because it's not a good time to negotiate with people. Well, let's put it this way. We sold our business as an opportunity. And so that's a different way of selling a business than selling it out of fear. The competitive landscape under which we were operating, there were only really like these kind of synergistic partners. There weren't these direct partners that we could go and say to Sal, hey, Sal, if you don't buy this business, you know, industrial furniture company C is going to buy it. And that's going to hurt you in these ways. And he wouldn't need to say that. He would know that right away. So you need to look at your marketplace and the type of business that you're growing and ask yourself, does it pose a threat to people in that way? Our business didn't. So if you look at all these buyer profiles, they were all opportunity seekers, people looking for a great job, people looking for retirement, people looking for the first investment in their PE fund, or people looking for a great deal. These are not people that are saying, oh, shiz, I got to go down to the CFO and make sure that we pick up this asset or else you know, people down the street are going to get it and that's going to screw us up. Yeah. So if you're in that position, I think it's a much better position to be in. Honestly, if you're selling a business, we just weren't in that position. Yeah. And so my mistake was don't try and put yourself in that position in the 11th hour. Right. So number two, nobody believes ad backs. So explain what an ad back is. Let's talk a little bit about the financial aspect of this, because I think, first of all, there's an emotional component to buyers and sellers during this process. And I think in a lot of ways that trumps the financial aspect. Like you're saying, depending on your financial position, you could care more about your emotions as we all do during big purchases or any kind of purchase. I'm on Amazon today. I got an emotional feeling. I don't care how much it costs. Sure. But there's a major financial component. Once you start to get through that emotional component, you start to dig through these financial aspects of your business. And for us, this was a pretty big deal because in 2008, 2009, 2010, we didn't have it all together on the financial side of things. So we implemented QuickBooks, but you know, like a lot of small businesses, you're kind of slow to get started with this stuff. I mean, we're capturing what we could and accounting for what we can doing the best that you can throughout the process, but it wasn't airtight. When you sell a business, I think depending on your business, they'll look back somewhere between two and five years. 
And so I'd say at least three, you have to have very tight financials. We're kind of on the cusp. So on that fourth and fifth year, we weren't as tight as we were obviously on the last three years. I think my advice here is this is they'll scrutinize anything. They'll scrutinize anything, but it's really important to get your financials in order from day one. Because like I said, Dan, when we first started this episode, we didn't have any idea we were going to sell this business. But I think you got a plan from day one that you're going to sell your business at some point. And part of that is making sure that your financials are tight. So even if you don't care today if your financials are tight, somebody's going to care four years from now. And there's a great potential that they're not going to buy your business because you don't have tight financials. What was your experience with the ad back stuff? So an ad back is when you say, you know, I remember evaluating a business and the guy was like, well, you know, I bought this Cadillac on the business last year that was $65,000. And, you know, if you own the business, you wouldn't have bought that Cadillac. So that means I can put $65,000 back into our earnings. Now, why isn't that reasonable? It is reasonable. The problem is that most buyers don't believe your ad backs. So a couple points of advice here. If you're going to spend money on your business, and there's a bunch of reasons why you probably shouldn't do that in terms of your liability. But if you do do it, and I'd say probably 95% of small businesses in America do it, you have to be very diligent in the way that you categorize and show how you're spending on your business. So for example, the Cadillac, the guy that bought the Cadillac on his business, and he has to go to that person that's evaluating his business to say, you don't need that Cadillac. And the person's going to say, well, you have to go to all these sales meetings. How am I supposed to get there? I need a car. I can't drive that. It becomes an emotional point of negotiation. You bicker and you argue over these. It does look a little bit small time too when you're like, oh, you know, I, I bought $50,000 worth of groceries and boat fuel off of my business last year. And it changes the character of the asset that the person's buying. Like this is a grocery buying mechanism. They're looking at trying to look for that bottom line. And if you're obscuring it with diapers and boat fuel, then it counts, in other words. So it really matters. If you spent 50 grand on your business, you're trying to get a three-time, four-time, five-time valuation off your bottom line. So the person that's buying says, well, I don't think it was 50 grand, but I, I do think it was 30. Then you're just going to so, cut your valuation. So what you're saying is what looked like an innocent Cadillac purchase four years ago turns into a $200,000 lower sales price. So here's what we did, Dan. About a year out from from when we knew that we were going to sell the business or when we were committed to the idea of selling the business, we stopped spending 100% on the business. I mean, it's very minimal. And I think that that really helps because when we first started to sell the business, the first person, I don't remember if it was Deals Dimitri or whatnot, we still had a bunch of spending in the company. And that's when I realized, hey, we got to stop this immediately because if we're still doing this process a year from now, which we were, we don't want anything in here. We just don't want to have this conversation. All right. Number three, there's an emotional catch-22. You need to be ready to work really hard, but also not be committed to that work. Of selling the business. Right. Every day, you know, someone says jump and you got to jump. You got to serve these people who are potential clients, potential buyers, because your broker can't do everything. Yeah. Make no mistake. This is a part-time job. This consumed probably, on the busiest weeks, it consumed 30 hours a week, you know, on the low end, just a few. So this is where Deals Dimitri found us six yeah. months into the process of you having a part-time job working for all these people who were tire kicker Tanya's. And then finally someone shows up with money. And it's like, you're on your last emotional <laughs> kind of thing. And yeah, we almost lost a million bucks. If that guy would have accepted the deal, we would be in a much different position right now. Yeah. And it all boils down to how we felt about a few hours a week. Yeah. It's crazy, right? I think, like I said, is, is be prepared to work your face off, but then also you don't need to sell it. This is a position that's very specific to us. So like we explained at the beginning of the episode, we're either going to hire a CEO or we're going to sell the business. Lucky for us, we're having tremendous growth and the business continues to grow really nicely. 
Let's talk about that now. So the number four point is when is the best time to sell a business? Not when it's growing rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> What's the reason for that? It's hard to get a good valuation number. I mean, we've had this kind of massive growth since 2008, year over year and month over month. It's It's been pretty incredible, but talking to our broker, it's not normal for a business and it's very hard to value a business when you're seeing that much growth. So and people were suspicious as to why we were selling it. You know, people come up with all kinds of crazy crap like, oh, you could have done a fire sale and I wouldn't have known about it. And I'm like, a fire sale for the last five years? You think that's what, <laughs> that's not sustainable? This is the actual growth of the business. But people will say things like that. So it's hard to value a business when it's growing as fast as our business was. I think the best time to sell a business, honestly, is when it's leveled out or growing just slightly, single digits per year, you know, 10%, 5%, or when it's tanking, because then people really feel like they're getting a good deal. But for us, <laughs> we're not in that position. The business wasn't tanking. It was weird because when you're dealing with the opportunity buyers, all the things that we thought were amazing about the business turned out to be a little bit of head scratchers in the sales process. Like, wait a second, you only work 10 hours a week yeah. on this business? Wait a second, you spend half the year in Europe with this business? wait a second, this business is growing 20% year over year. It always ended up being downsides because what people want to do is they want to see something screwed up. They want to see something screwed up and they also want to see something that they can contribute to. That's a really big emotional hanger for people. Is they have to be able to look at this business and say, I have this skill set, I can contribute to this. So, And I was really worried because I knew that not a lot of buyers would have the same profile that I have. And I thought that that was kind of the only person that felt like they can contribute to this kind of business. Turns out that wasn't true. But you're right to say all the things that we thought were positive. It was a liability. I mean, no one believed me in a lot of ways. No one believed that I only worked this amount of time on the business and that I was growing this fast. So There were a couple other things that the buyers hated. They hated staff changes. One of the things that's interesting about selling a business is that you have to describe your staff in detail to the potential buyers. Yeah. Whenever something changed there, that was definitely a point of negotiation and anxiety. Three or four months in, our general manager left and our designer was on the way out because his visa was expired. So, and our businesses are two linchpin positions. So, I mean, basically, we had to kind of put the business sale on ice until we got that smoothed out. You know, because you're having to tell people this story. People, you're talking to potential buyers and they're saying, who's this person? Who's that person? And then you say, well, they're leaving. And they're like, oh, shit, what's going to happen when they leave? And you're like, don't worry about it. I've replaced this position five times. It's going to be fine. And nobody believes you. So we kind of slowed down the sale a little bit. We got the new people in position. And then I said, well, yeah, they're brand new. They've only been here a mother. Well, they're brand new. What's going to happen <laughs> when I take it? So it's like, you can't win. You yeah. can't win. But I'll tell you this if you're selling a business and you've had a lot of staff turnover, you expect a lot of staff turnover, just wait a couple months if you can. It becomes a place where people aren't comfortable. So this was uh, part of number five, which is nail your story. What was your story? How did you describe it to people and what ended up being compelling for people when you were describing what's going on? Well, the first thing is that you had rock solid numbers. Yeah. The numbers were compelling. The numbers were compelling. The problem with my story, like I said to you before, it was absolutely true, but people didn't believe it. This is like the location independent thing. Yep. Backfiring. Yep. I basically said, look, I'm working on this business five to 10 hours a week. It's doing great, but I've got this business partner. I've got these other ventures. I'm just really tired emotionally of dealing with this company. And people are looking at me and looking at the bottom line and <laughs> looking at what this company spins off. And they're just like, you're full of shit probably because no one in your position would sell something like this. And so I kind of have to say, well, maybe you don't understand. I'm in my early thirties. I see a lot of potential in my life. You know? <laughs> and they're like, we don't. So 
right. <laughs> that's the conversation and that and that's the story and a lot of people didn't believe it yeah <laughs> i don't know how i would change my story I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think about that right now but for me i mean i was just trying to be 100 percent transparent because i thought that's what it would take <laughs> turns out i think it turned out too because the buyer who's wonderful that eventually ended up taking the company was that transparency and that trust ended up being really important because one of the things that i don't think we realize is how long the closing process took if you think the due diligence process is going to take you a long time, get ready till you close. And what we found is in order to get the deal done with the banks and with our buyer, that there was so many I's that needed to be dotted and T's that needed to be crossed and lawyers that needed to be consulted, that that was another, how long do you think closing took us? Months. Yeah, a long time. To the point of nailing your story. You go through all these suitors, but your story only matters to one person, and that's hopefully the buyer if you find one. And it really resonated with this buyer. And so that's all it took. And I think looking back, I could see that initially when my story wasn't holding for people or when they weren't buying it, or they're just not the right buyer for the business. I mean, because honestly, Dan, you can sit there and craft and create any kind of story. It doesn't necessarily make it untrue, but there's a lot of different stories that we could have told. Sure. I chose to tell the one that was true from my heart and that was the easiest to tell and it didn't resonate with everybody. Yeah, and you're going to have to have a continuing relationship with that person if they owe you money and if you're training them on the business, a lot of business deals come with basically training agreements. You know, if they're going to have to step into a CEO role, an owner role, well, you might have to train them for a few months or be available for phone calls. And at that point, they're going to see your underwear, right? So there's no way that you're going to be able to keep something off the table from them. And your staff, your current staff, and then your ex-staff, you're going to probably have to continue to coordinate with them. All right. Number six, lawyers are lame. Not all of them. We knew this at the beginning, though. So what's the takeaways? What we learn about dealing with lawyers? Because honestly, like we've more or less stayed out of the legal game. We haven't had to be involved with too many lawyers. More or less. A couple things about the legal part of this. I think I'll say this. Find a lawyer that's done exactly what you want to do when you're trying to sell your business. And don't go to LegalZoom and try to pull this together yourself. Depending on the size of the deal and if there's money owed to people at the end of the deal. How do lawyers charge you, for example? Did you pay as a percentage of the deal or did... We pay it as a retainer. You get put on a retainer and then they try and use up all the money. Basically, <laughs> that's how it happened. But yeah, I mean, I think that one of the lawyers that we worked with did try and find out how much the deal was worth. And I think he was trying to jockey to figure out, you know, I'm sure that some of them have some percentage that they try and nab from these deals. But here's what's important, man, is that you get a good lawyer involved that has done exactly what you want to do. When I say good, here's how you quantify that. Ask for references and examples of previous work. Have them show you deals that look just like yours. So here's a deal that I did that looks just like yours. That's like the same type of institutions are involved, same types of companies. Critical. When you're working with this person, you need to tell them what your blind spots are, and then you need to ask them what they think the blind spots are. A lot of what this lawyer is going to try and do for you is try and protect you from the liabilities from the downsides. And it's not possible to protect yourself from all of them, I don't think. And so you just kind of have to work together and figure out what the biggest liabilities in this deal are. Because you're going to end up spending millions of dollars if you try and protect yourself from all the liabilities. So it's just like, let's point out what the biggest liabilities are in this deal and try and protect the downside and not spend too much money trying to do that. One of the things we noticed is that a lot of the lawyers who would be most suited for our case were too busy for it. Yeah. So one of the recommendations I have is to start planning well ahead in advance to get a relationship because you know that you're going to need to engage that person, say, six months to a year later. 
one of the things that I think we made a little bit of a mistake is sort of waited a little bit too long in the process. So we ended up getting a competent lawyer, but not one who had focused on deals precisely like ours, right? which would have been better. And you'd be amazed. I mean, for them, I think to do a good job, they really have to understand intimately a lot of the details around your deal. Because for them, I can kind of see how the process works now is that they take all this information into their head and then they, you know, write these documents or edit these documents. So you kind of have to tell them a lot of information surrounding the deal and your personal situation. And that for me was a little bit uncomfortable in the beginning because I didn't understand why I was asking these questions. But now I understand why it's important to draft these documents properly. And we ended up using a couple different lawyers during this deal. And I think that that made it even maybe even a little bit more complicated because this one doesn't know what this other one's doing and they're not talking to the buyer's lawyer at the same time. The other thing that I learned in this process, Dan, is that the buyer is typically responsible for drafting up all the documents. That's something that we learned a little late. Why is that important? It's important because that changes your cost structure. So when you start to think about how much is this going to cost? Oh, so you don't want to get your lawyer working on those things. Right, right. It's the responsibility of the buyer. But here's the thing. If the buyer has a crappy lawyer and they're writing bad documents, then your lawyer has to go in and rewrite them or edit them. So Because this is all margin, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to you have to basically find the buyer and the seller's lawyers. And I think, I don't know how often this happens, but they have to traditionally agree on a lot of things right? and see eye to eye. And if they don't, then your legal bill is just going to start racking up. So They could have a backdoor beer and say, hey, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than we originally suspected. <laughs> that brings up another good point, which is we didn't let these lawyers talk to each other too much on the phone. Huh. Us and, and the buyer kind of had this agreement like, hey, let's talk through all these issues. And if they need to get involved on the phone, which I think that only happened once, you know, we'll let them go for it. But it is interesting, you know, like we have all these kind of suspicions and stuff because we're new to this process and everything. But it is a little bit removed from, I think, how we see our day to day entrepreneurial role as like both team leaders and as people who are generating products and valuable things, all of a sudden to go back to this shark tank where everybody's just trying to peel off margin off of all that value that you've created. And yeah. it's a different way of interacting with people. Yeah. And like you said, man, you only do this like a couple times in your life unless your deal's Dimitri and you've done it 25. <laughs> <laughs> all right. One more point. The difficulty with brokers. Ultimately, I think we made the right choice to go with a broker. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I still, like I said, I'm still thinking through this process and how we would have marketed this business to our list without engaging our staff. And I just don't think it would have been possible. So I think you've got to work with a broker if you don't have a list. I mean, that's the really only option for people. I mean, like I said, in the beginning, I would just start talking about to the staff and to the audience and everybody about the possibility of selling this business from day one. You know, that's the idea. But if you find yourself in the position we were in, which I think a lot of people are in, is you have to engage a broker. And so some of the issues that you might encounter with the broker. Now, for us, Dan, I really feel very passionate about... Our broker was awesome. He was really good. And I, I really appreciated the work that he put in. It hurt a little bit when you got to pay that check at the end of the deal. It hurt a lot of it. That's the most we've ever paid anybody in one year. It was a lot of money, but he got the deal done. And maybe we should have him on here sometime. I could go on forever about the role that he played in this process. Because you're not selling your business directly to the buyer. You're kind of selling it through the broker was my experience. Right. Which means in practical terms that when the broker interacts with buyers, he's interacting with his brokerage's customers, yeah, not your buyer. And what that does is it changes some of the dynamics, which means that he can't basically give you super preferential treatment. In other words, during a letter of intent period, that 30 to 60 day due diligence, it would be way better for us as sellers 
if we had three or four different buyers in that LOI period. Yeah. And if we were doing a sale to our list, that's how we do it because there's one opportunity. It's right here. Everybody can race to go and get it. And whoever has the best deal at the end of the day wins the prize or whatever. Whereas when you're working with a brokerage, well, that's not the only prize. These people are part of their audience and they want to see deals on a regular basis. Maybe they want to buy a business every three or four years. Maybe they're deals. They want to do one every month. And so you can't treat them in that way, at least in the way these traditional brokers operate. And so although we were put at the advantage of having access to a list of people who at least express interest in purchasing assets at that level, which is not what people that follow this podcast have a stated interest in, right? I'm sure there's overlap there, but that's why we took that risk to go with a broker that has that audience. But then on the other hand, you have to account for the fact that then the broker has a responsibility to their audience. They're going to treat them in a way that they see fit. So in particular, when we got down to the wire with deals, Dimitri and some other people and some of the tire kickers and stuff, it was like, man, we're really, we could have spent this time on some great things in our business and lives. And here we are in this process that we feel like is a little bit inefficient that we could do way better. This is so obvious. And so that's a trade-off you have to make if you want to work with that traditional style broker. I will say this too about the broker is they really help to push the deal forward. So, you know, going through this the first time, I can really see the value in that. It would have been hard for me to push the deal forward with some of these people because, you know, I'm the one selling it. So I'm like, well, a broker will come in a lot of times and just say like to the buyer or potential buyer, so what's the next step for you? What do you think you should do? That's a little bit of an awkward conversation for me to have as a seller. So what's your next step here in this? Well, and I think the brokers understand things like the emotional nature of these deals and how you need to continue to like step up your level of commitment. Yep. For a broker, it's a big deal to get to the LOI period because a broker is going to say, well, 75% of deals that get to this period, you know, we're going to close maybe at a little bit lower than your asking price, but whatever, we got a deal done and that's good for the broker. Like the broker, we've talked about this many times. They want a deal, right? Like, because that's when they're going to get paid. I mean, if they get you 30 more percent, it's not really going to change their payday that much. So they're pushing for a deal and the emotional quality for the buyer changes if they know that they could just get screwed out of that deal. Yeah, they know the 10 steps that it takes to get to a deal. And they know what state of completion you're in. You just hit on something important, though, which is their commission-based structure. So a lot of these brokers work on commission. So let's say that they get 10% of the deal, right? And you sell your business for a million bucks, and they get $100,000. Now, if they come to you and deals Dimitri, it was like, you know, let's get this deal done for $750,000. They get 75 grand. And so it's only a 25 grand swing for them. It's a $250,000 swing for you. And the difference is, is like, if nothing happens, you still made all the income during the process and you still own the business. Right. You're chilling in the sunset, whereas the brokers got zero. So the incentives aren't aligned on many different fronts. The commission structure does not align them. And also the fact that you have different audiences does not align them. At the end of the day, though, so as long as you're cognizant of those things and you can have an open conversation. I mean, at one point we were absolutely livid when we were at the end of this LOI period, even though I think our broker handled it responsibly with us. Like he wasn't hoodwinking us. It was honest with us. But when that process didn't work, we were at our emotional ends. Yeah. We weren't sure if we wanted to go back and try it again. As long as you know that going into it. And we didn't because this was our first time trying to do a big sale like this. But it is hard to tell sometimes whose team your broker is on. The broker's on team deal. Right. They're on team deal. And team brokerage. Exactly. And that's fine as long as you know that going into it. All right. So we got an hour on tape. A lot of things in the air. We could probably do a week's worth of recordings. But maybe some final thoughts on just sort of the overview 
of what happened over the last year? I think we went through seven steps here today in the podcast. Seven things you should consider. Seven things you should consider. There's A through Z under all those different points. And then there's probably another 20 points that we could talk about. So this is like our first brain dump. You know, me and you kind of chillax, sit down in the same room a month after the sale. Well, if people have questions, let's post this one at tropicalmba.com slash sold. If anybody would be curious about an episode about a particular element or a particular character, we can go deeper into that. That would be cool. Any other final thoughts? Don't ask me what's next. If you see me in the street, <laughs> don't ask me what's next. That's my advice to you. One of the things that's next is we're hiring a podcast producer and we finally put the job ad up. It's a part-time position, but with I'm so excited about this because we know exactly what it takes to get this show done in terms of research and writing and editing and everything and what it takes to get a blog post up. I think we've made it very clear. I think this is going to be a very popular job. So if you do apply, know that it's competitive. You know, know that you're going to have to bring your A game. I'm so excited. I think it shows, to me at least, I mean, we've only been live for 24 hours on the job ad and... We have 16 applications already. Well, I'm looking forward to it, man. I think we're going to take it to the next level. Yeah. We're going to get a little bit more aggressive about this podcast game and the writing game. You calling it the podcast game now? Yeah, why not? <laughs> Can we tell everybody about our idea <laughs> to change the brand? Yeah. I think, and again, if you want to comment on this podcast, I know there's a lot to comment on, but... TopicalNBA.com is sold. Yeah. I think we're very committed to getting away from the TNBA brand and the palm trees, not getting away from the kind of content that we put out, our thoughts, things like that. We want to amplify those things, but we want to get away from the palm trees. So if you have any thoughts about that, if you like the TNBA and you can't see yourself living without it, let us know. How about the Dan and Ian show? I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> all right. All right. We're done. I think that's the end of it. Let's go uh, grab some lunch or something. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.